0: good. Does my heart good. Let me just begin this morning by asking you a question. What would it be like to be part of a church that was growing by leaps and bounds? What do you think that would be like? Imagine the excitement of seeing scores of people coming to faith, hundreds of people coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ every single week. A line up to the uh, baptismal tank, right? You have to make an appointment in order to get in. Just a constant flow through the water. Wouldn't that be amazing? Imagine the logistical problems associated with that kind of a phenomenon, huh? I mean, how do you disciple and plug into ministry that many baby Christians? New converts that are constantly being born. Where will you all meet anyway? Where do you find a room big enough for a church that is is birthed of a three thousand in one day and then just continues to grow from there on out? Where do you meet? How do you get news around to all those new people of where are you going to meet? How do you communicate? How do you know who's part of the church and who's not a part of the church? Could be a lot of people kind of hanging around on the edges, I would think, just sort of observing the phenomena. How do you, uh, how do you collect the funds to keep the operation going? How do you keep a false teacher from infiltrating into the midst, drawing disciples away after themselves? Who follows up on people that are missing? Old so-and-so, I I think he was here last week, but now I'm not sure. Who who keeps track of all that and follows it up? What about the sick, poor, widows, shut-ins? You know, it was this last group of people and the problems associated with it that almost fractured the infant church. It was that very problem of dealing with those who were sick, those who were poor, those who were widowed that almost blew this new work of God apart hardly before it had even gotten out of the starting blocks. You know, it's obvious, I think, to really anyone, if they would think about it, that the early church was much more practiced in the area of charitable giving than you and I are. There were no governmental agencies for someone to turn to. They lost their job or had some kind of unfortunate circumstances come into their life. There were were no no government place to go to. There were no private charities either. People relied upon uh, believers and their families to help them out, to take care of them. That's the only place they had to go. Church was one big family, one gigantic family. Most uh, New Testament scholars believe that within a very short time, we're talking about a church in Jerusalem of somewhere around twenty thousand people. That's a mega church by anybody's standards. Twenty thousand people, all kinds that need to be taken care of. And following along in the tradition of the Old Testament practices of the nation of Israel, the church did a remarkable job taking care of those people. Listen to what Luke records for us in the second chapter of the book of Acts. Beginning in verse 42, he says, And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved Chapter 4, verse 34-35, Luke continues to record for us. He says, There was not a needy person among them. Let that sink in for a moment. There was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would distribute to each as any had need. It was an exciting time. It was an incredibly exciting time. If you're not already done, so open your Bible to Luke's account there in the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter 6 this morning. Luke chapter, or Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, there is Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. The black bound Bible there would be page 1094. And as we're looking at Luke 6, verses 1 through 7, I want to make four observations for you this morning from this passage pertaining to the role of deacons so that we will understand their function here at Foothill Bible Church. There are four observations that I want to draw out of these seven verses that we believe are critical, critical to understanding the role of deacons. Now, let me give a couple of caveats on the front side. Okay, it it cannot be said with absolute certainty that Luke is setting out here to describe an order of deacons. I will readily acknowledge that. Okay, the word deacons is not used here. In fact, they are later referred to as the seven. So I am aware of that and I acknowledge that fact. But it is also clear that what is described here, later came to be associated with the office of the deacon. There is no dispute about that. I'm also aware that in chapter 11 of the book of Acts, that Barnabas and Saul are the ones who delivered the emergency relief for the famine there in Jerusalem, and they delivered it to the elders. But it's not unreasonable to assume that the elders then took it and passed it on to the deacons for the individual distribution. So I don't think that Acts chapter 11 is a fatal stumbling block either. To seeing here in these seven verses of Acts chapter 6, the birth of the ministry of the deacon. We've entitled this morning's message, What Do Deacons Do? Deacons deek, Right? Well, we want to take a little closer look at what it means for deacons to deek. And so there are four observations here. They're very simple. I've given them to you on your handout. There was a bad situation. They found a simple solution. There was a unanimous selection. And Luke provides a striking summary. Luke provides a striking summary. I've got a lot of notes here to go through with you this morning, so we're going to have to really get after this thing. So fasten your seatbelts and let's go. So let's look first at the bad situation. Verse one. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. And the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. The church here is still confined to Jerusalem. All right, at this point, it is still the very infant church here in Jerusalem, probably within its its very early years. The Apostle Paul is yet to be converted, depending on where you place that in the chronology. It's by anybody's measure still very early in in the life of the church. And at this point in time, the, the prosperity, the general welfare of the church is being disturbed. Gaguzmas is the word used in the Greek. I love the word. It, it sounds like what it means, and it means grumbling. Okay? Gaguzmas, grumbling. There was a complaining or a grumbling going on in this infant body. And it was, uh, and it was on the part of the Hellenists against the Hebrews on the part of the Hellenists against the Hebrews. And what was it that they were complaining about? What was the reason for the complaining amongst these two groups of people? The source of the complaint was that the Hellenist or Hellenistic widows were being overlooked in the daily serving. In the daily serving. Look at verse 1 again. Hopefully your Bible has of food in italics in your Bible. Okay, because it should be. It is not there originally. It is perhaps implied and perhaps not. They are being overlooked in the daily serving. I will come back to that in a moment. But it is these Hellenists, again, verse 1. Do you see that? A complaint or a grumbling arose on the part of the Hellenists. Again, notice Jews is in italics. The Hellenists. And this is just another name for the Jews of the, what's called the diaspora or the dispersion. Through the history of the nation of Israel, there had been numerous times they had been conquered. And as they were conquered, and as was uh, typical of, of that part of the world and in those days, that the, the, the uh, people would be, would be dispossessed from their land. As the land was overrun by foreign armies, many times they would carry captives away. And so the nation of Israel had been scattered, certainly scattered under the conquering by, um, by Babylon in 586. And so Jews were spread throughout the Mediterranean world. These were the Jews of what was called the Diaspora. Some moved away voluntarily because the land had been uh, had been overrun so badly and the effects of warfare had created such economic hardships that some just moved away. Others were forcibly taken from their land. And as is typical when people are are transported away, they begin to put roots down into a new homeland, and that's what had gone on. So throughout the Mediterranean the world, there were many, many Jews who had put roots down in other parts of the world and had begun to adopt Greek language and culture. These are the Jews of the diaspora. These are the Hellenistic. Verse one. They had adopted Greek as their language. They had adopted Greek Um, uh, clothing styles and and culture to one degree or another. And so they were very much uh, citizens both of Israel and of the Greek world. Now, compared against them, we also have the other group here, which are called the uh, Hebrews, right? The Hebrews. These, uh, These Hebrews were those that had remained in the land remained in the land of Palestine. Now, by the way, uh, the Apostle Paul was a, was a Hellenistic Jew. He was a Jew of the Diaspora, Okay, just so you understand. What it meant was if you were a Diaspora Jew is you could move easily in and out of various cultures. And so the Apostle Paul, of course, makes the ideal church planter because he is comfortable in both the Gentile world and in the Jewish world by virtue of being a Diaspora Jew. But now these other Jews, they call the Hebrews. These are the natives. These are the Aramaic-speaking Jews of Palestine, and they had not accommodated the the, uh, Greek culture to the same extent that the Hellenistic Jews had. And the diversity here and the difference between the Hellenistic and the and the native or Hebrew Jews was so significant that there were two different synagogues. They would not even worship together in the same synagogue. It would be like two separate churches a Gentile church and a Jewish church, okay? There was that radical a difference between them. They would not associate together. They did not like to associate together. There was more that separated them, I think, than brought them together. And now, with, the, with Pentecost, right, and the Spirit being poured out, and they, and they all believe now in the, in the Messiah, and they receive the, the Spirit of God within them, and they are made one body in Christ Jesus. And now, that which had been kept separate for centuries is being crammed together again in the church. You can kind of see where the problems will come. This was a forcible reuniting of the Hellenistic and Hebrew Jews, Forcible, that is, because the Spirit of God had done it. Now, there's one other thing that you need to know. The Hellenistic Jews, some, let me put it this way, it was was a, a custom among some, when they got near the end of their life to move back to their homeland, back in and around Jerusalem, that they might die there in Israel. And so they would, some number of them would move back at near the end of their life and they would bring their wife with them. And then they would up and die on her in the Holy Land and leave her as a widow. And they may or may not have provided sufficient financial resources to care for her. And so there was an abnormal amount of Hellenistic Jewish widows to be found in and around Jerusalem. Beyond that, Pentecost, if you'll remember, when at, at, at Pentecost there were Jews from all around the Mediterranean basin and a number of them, it appears, stayed after Pentecost. They are in Jerusalem to be become part of this early church. And so as they passed away, their widows too are left to be taken care of. And so you have this problem. You have two cultures that don't mesh well together, in fact, butt heads with one another, and you have probably an abnormal amount of widows coming out of one versus the other. You can see the tension arising in the church. Look again, verse 1. A grumbling or a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows, that is the Hellenistic Jewish widows, were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Now, the text does not say they were being deliberately overlooked, so I I, I don't I'm not comfortable putting that upon this early church. I don't think they were being deliberately slighted. I think it was more of an oversight. I'm more comfortable with that. And over, I mean, after all, think about it with me. You've got explosive church growth. You don't have the means and mechanisms of communication that you and I take for granted today. You don't exactly pick up the phone and check on people, right? No emails, no faxes, no telephones, no public address systems. Very difficult to get around and and communicate. Beyond that, you have two groups that traditionally do not associate with each other. Now thrust together. And so they've been traveling in separate circles. They're now thrust into the same circles and you've got this body of widows. And I think what has happened here is that people just didn't know about them. They forgot about them. Out of sight, out of mind. But there is a grumbling, there is a, there is a uh, complaining that's, a, that's arising here because as you might expect... To, to overlook this important group of people who are close to the heart of God would raise issues within the congregation. Now, they're being overlooked, I said I'd come back to this, in the daily serving. The diakonia is the word, actually, okay? The daily serving. The word means, I told you this last time, it means ministry or it means serving. It also can mean financial relief. It's used that way, by the way, in Acts chapter 11, verse twenty nine, Acts chapter twelve, verse twenty-five. So it is used of financial relief. There was a Jewish custom, we need to be aware of this. It will help add some some color to what's going on here. There, there was a very long and established Jewish custom of caring for the poor. God mandates it, and, there, and it had become part of the Jewish fabric of their culture. And basically it was twofold. The first was what they called the daily distributions of basic foodstuffs. There was a daily distribution of basic food needs and it was available to non-residents and to transients. So those that were non-residents of Jerusalem or transients just passing through, okay, there was a place they could go and they could receive a daily allotment of food. Beyond that, there was a weekly amount of money a dole it was called given out enough money to purchase 14 meals and that was provided to the poor members of the community every friday so every friday the poor members of the jewish community could go and they could receive enough money to carry to, to buy 14 meals two meals a day until the following friday in modern terms we would call these things a a food closet and a benevolence fund all right? And those were long established in the tradition of Israel. So we've got this problem. It's part of their culture to certainly care for those who are disadvantaged, but there is also the cultural collision going on here in the new church. And in, the, in that mess, these Hellenistic Jewish widows are being overlooked. And so the 12, verse 2, that is the Apostles, They summon the congregation and they say to them, why, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. It is not desirable. It's not pleasing. It is not satisfactory. It is not acceptable. It is not right. Those would all be ways to translate what they're talking about here. Now, who is it not acceptable to? There is a couple of possibilities. One may be that it's not acceptable to the twelve themselves, But I think more properly that it's a reference to God. It is not acceptable to God. It is not pleasing to God. It is not satisfactory to God for us to neglect. Right. Verse 12. Neglect what? The word of God in order to serve tables. After all, the apostles were personally commissioned by Jesus Christ to be his spokesman. Right. To bring the word of God. Acts one eight. And so for these men who have been given a specific commission to do something, they're saying it's not a good idea in God's sight for us to neglect the thing we've been directly told to do in order to do this other thing, in order to take care of this problem. I think contextually what has happened is that as the congregation grew in size, the, the role of caring for the widows had been delegated by the apostles. It had been delegated. I don't think what's going on here is that the apostles have been doing it themselves and they've been doing a poor job. I don't think that's what's happening. I think they had delegated it before this and the people they had delegated it to had not been doing a good job. And so they're saying is we can't take it back. We don't believe God would have us take it back. We have something else we've been told to do. And so we've got a problem here and we've got to resolve it. By the way, the Word of God in the context here in these early chapters of Acts, Acts 2.42, 4.4, 29, 31, is all talking about preaching. I think what they're saying is here it is not desirable, it's not a good idea for us to stop preaching, verse 2, in order to serve tables. We have been given a specific responsibility to preach. We need to do that and we need to find someone else to do this other important thing ministry this very important ministry to serve tables the word tables is trapeza in the greek and it means a table it could mean especially a dining room table so it can be a reference to a dining room table it can also refer to food or meals and that's why you see it here translated verse one in the daily serving of food that is well within the lexical range of this word but it also is used to refer to the table upon which a banker conducts his transactions. It's used that way over in Luke 19.23. It's used of a table over which a banker passes money. By the way, uh, just uh, FYI, the uh, English word bank comes from the English word bench. Okay, so it relates. All right, so a table can mean the serving of tables here or the daily serving and so forth can mean financial service. It doesn't have to mean that they're talking about preparing meals and serving it to people. It has the idea of money. And if you think about the Jewish culture at the time, I told you it was two things, right? There was a daily distribution of foodstuffs and there was also the idea of a a weekly uh, allotment of money. And if you also think about a congregation of 20,000 people, it seems to me that it's more easily understood as the money side than the food side. So they're saying it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to become involved in the banking business, in money distribution to the congregation. Let me illustrate uh, the seriousness of this whole situation for you. 13 years ago last month, Upland Bible Church and Foothill Baptist Church agreed to merge and become Foothill Bible Church. Many of you were here for that time or from that time and many, many more of you were not. But at that, at, at that time, there was a, an overwhelming support among both congregations to go ahead and merge and become a new church, Foothill Bible Church. But what do you think would have happened if shortly after the merger, the widows and shut-ins of one of the two congregations began to get systematically overlooked? That their visitation didn't happen or or there was financial problems and they somehow got overlooked in that process. What do you think would have happened to the merger of Upland Bible Church and Foothill Baptist Church. It would have blown itself right apart. Okay. That's just in a microcosm. This is now right here at the very infancy of the Christian church. This situation is absolutely serious. If they don't get it right here, Christianity is going to splinter right out of the gate and we're going to have various branches of the church. What a terrible testimony to the unifying work of the Holy Spirit of God, right? When right out of the chute within the first couple years, this thing can't be held together. And so it is a very bad situation. To that, the apostles find a simple solution. Verses 3 and 4. Here it is. But select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, Full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Immediately notice, verse 2, that the twelve, or the apostles, they pull the whole congregation together and they bring them in on the solution. They bring them into the solution. They get their buy-in right from the front. They don't don't top-down handle this one. They they use uh, consensus building. To resolve this issue. Why is that so important? Because you've got a division going on right down the middle of the church. They have got to build consensus to hold this thing together. And so they involve the people. But notice they don't just throw it at them and say, well, you know, you got a problem. You guys figure it out. They give them a solution too. Right, verse two or verse three. Select among you seven men of good reputation and full of the spirit. So they give them a solution, but they involve the congregation in the implementation of that solution. Very, very wise. Very wise. They give oversight, but they do not control the process. Select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, men of chosen character, choice character, right? Men who would meet what Paul later lays out in 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13 the characteristics we looked at last week. Choose those kind of men to whom we can give this most significant task. This is the the kind of task that's going to require great diplomacy, great skill, great financial integrity to get this thing solved. The last thing in the world they want to do is assign it to somebody like a Judas, right? Who couldn't keep his hand out of the money bag. So choose from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit. I understand that to mean believers, right? They got to be believers and they have to be men of wisdom. Because if these guys blow it, if they fail. The church is going to be devastated. Church is going to be devastated. We are going to put these men in charge. We're going to put these men in charge Of the task. All right. We're going to give it to them to handle. While we ourselves are going to give our attention to that which has been commissioned to us. Verse 4. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Listen to this uh, quote from John Calvin, by the way. Just talking about this passage. And the seriousness of, of of the need to have quality men serve as deacons. Calvin says, I quote, It is necessary for them, that is, the deacons, to be provided not only with the other graces of the Spirit, but also certainly with wisdom, for without it that task cannot be properly carried out. They may thus be on guard not only against the impostors and frauds of those who are far too inclined to begging and suck up what was needed for the brethren who are in extreme poverty. But also against the slanders of those who are constantly making disparaging remarks, even if there is no occasion for doing so. For as well as being full of difficulties, that office is also exposed to unjustified complaints. Now, that's John Calvin writing in the middle of the 16th century about the office of the deacon. And he's saying it is hard work to be a deacon. It kind of comes at you from both ends. You've got those that are trying to rip the church off and you've got others who think that what you've done is unfair. And so you're squeezed from both sides. You better be men full of, the, you know, full of the Spirit and of wisdom if you are going to negotiate these mind-infested waters. So they have to be men here who know their way around. And we will put them in charge of the task, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. All right, devoting just speaks of single-mindedness. The apostles are going to give themselves to the task that's been given to them, which is the preaching of the word and bringing it out to the uh, first to Jerusalem, right, and then to do a Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They're going to give themselves to that task while they're not going to neglect the other one. They're going to put it into the hands of very competent men. Now, some people read this passage, and they say the deacons... You know, this is not a good passage to talk about deacons from. Because, as I said earlier, it's Luke himself refers to them as the seven. He doesn't call them deacons. So how do we feel comfortable of you know, saying that this is really the ministry of the deacons? Well, let me just give you a few things to chew on as you consider that. First, we don't have any trouble at all in verse 4 when we say, but we, that is the apostles... We'll devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. We don't have any trouble at all laying that verse on elders, do we? We say, yeah, that's the ministry of an elder, prayer and giving himself to them, you know, to the ministry of the word. So we're quick to make that transition for the apostles to the elders, but we're a little slower to make a transition from the seven to deacons. But I think Luke is defining something here. He is describing something and Let me just ask you this. If if not here, then where does Luke describe the duties of a deacon? If he doesn't do it here in in this portion of the book of Acts, where in the whole book of Acts does he ever talk about deacons? I mean, were deacons only a late invention of the Apostle Paul? He refers to them as, as a class of leaders in the church. When he gets to his prison epistles, he gets to Philippians and and 1 Timothy, those are later epistles. And, and he there talks about deacons. So there obviously are deacons. And, and I'll even go beyond that. Where does Paul get the idea for deacons himself? If not from here. And why would he prescribe it to all churches? Right? 1 Timothy 3, verses 15 and 16, where he talks about, that, you know, in case I'm slow in coming, that what I'm giving you here is to, is to be prescribed to all the churches. So Paul outlines the characteristics of deacons, and he says it's for all churches, yet he never defines what the duties of a deacon are. I think the reason is, is because Luke has done it for us. Luke has done it for us here in Acts 6. Notice, by the way, in verses 3 and 4, there's it's the whole idea of diversity of duties. You know, the, the church is like a human body, right? It has its various parts, and we all work together to accomplish the whole. That's really the way God has created His universe. I mean, think about things like beehives and, and ant colonies and things like that, right? People have specific responsibilities. They do their job, and it all comes together into a, into a great big whole. The church is no different. And so here in verses 3 and 4, the apostles are saying, listen, we've been given a responsibility of preaching the word. We need others who will take on the responsibility of ministering to the poor of the church. So they have a very simple solution. Find some qualified men and give the job to them. That's their simple solution. And so there's a unanimous decision, verses 5 and 6, right? The statement found approval with the whole congregation... They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. By the way, these are all Greek names. Perhaps you've heard that before. Okay, This does not prove that they are all Hellenists, by the way, because uh, Andrew, Philip, and Bartholomew, who are disciples of Jesus, all have Greek names too. Okay, so it doesn't prove that they are Hellenists, but it certainly creates a strong likelihood in that direction. That's kind of logical, isn't it? I mean, if the Hellenistic widows are the ones being overlooked, it's, it's logical that the ones that you raise up to do the job would be people who know who they are and would be committed to them. These, verse 6, they brought before the apostles and after praying and laying hands on them. They now have the task after praying and laying hands on them. Okay, who laid the hands on them? Who laid the hands? What is the antecedent of the pronoun they? Some would tell you it was the congregation. The congregation laid hands on them. So it was was the congregation's full involvement even at that level. I don't think so. I think the they there refers to the apostles. It was the apostles who laid hands on them. It was the apostles who conceived the solution. It was the apostles who gave direction on how to do it. It was the congregation who chose the men. And I think it was the apostles then who entered in to lay hands on them and and ordained them, if you like, to that task. It is the apostles who have oversight over the church. Beyond that, just think of the practi- impracticality of 20,000 people laying their hands on seven men. Okay? I don't really even know how you would do such a thing. So I think the antecedent of the pronoun they is the apostles. All right, These seven men, they brought before the apostles, and after praying, the apostles laid their hands on them. Notice there was a unanimous selection going on here. These men, it was clear that these were the right men for the job. These these were men of such stellar character. They just stood out. Everybody knew these were the guys who were going to get this job done. So Luke gives us an interesting summary. I call it a striking summary. Verse 7, and the word of God kept on spreading. Do you see that? And the word of God kept on spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. There are six places, by the way, in uh, in Luke's work here, uh, the book of Acts, in which he provides these summary kind of statements. They're noteworthy to look at. I'll just give them to you. You can jot them down, check them out on your own. This is the first. Chapter 9 verse 31, chapter 12 verse 24, chapter 16 verse 5, chapter 19 verse 20, and chapter 28 verse 31. It's fascinating to see these summary statements and then read what goes on before them. Luke is inserting these here because he's communicating something. He's taking the time to summarize the activity to date and tell you the effect of it. And so what he says here is the effect of seven men being put forward by the congregation, men of full of the spirit and of wisdom who can take on the significant task of ministry to the poor and the overlooked and the needy among this struggling new congregation. The result of that decision was that the word of God kept on spreading. Right. And the number of the disciples continued to increase. The church didn't miss a beat. It continued to grow and grow and grow. Even priests, it says, a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. The priests knew the law. They knew the requirement in Israel to care for the downtrodden, for the widow and the orphan, right? And so it was important to them, it was significant to them that this new congregation continue in that great tradition of Israel. And so they were certainly on board with the solution. The problem is solved. There's peace in the fellowship. No division in the family. The community is now at peace and it just continues to go. The apostles are freed to do what they're supposed to do. They're giving apostolic witness. The word of God is continuing to spread. Those that have been once hostile to the faith, the priests, are now coming to faith themselves. Really amazing. It's a striking summary statement of this significant point in the in the history of the church beloved benevolence beautifies the gospel benevolence beautifies the gospel what do i mean by that the gospel is good news amen that we can be right with our creator that the alienation and sin that has uh, it has infected us and has separated us from our creator, has been solved in Jesus Christ and we can be made right. That is an incredible message, right? That is indeed the good news. But there is a need for a, a horizontal component as well. If God has been that gracious and merciful and benevolent to, to put away the sin of rebels and he also cares for rebels on a horizontal level, providing for food and clothing and and long life and, and happy children and good marriages and on and on and on, all the things that God does for us, then his people who are proclaiming the message of deliverance and reconciliation with God also need to have a horizontal component. It's not all just about someday, right? High in the sky someday there is, a, there is a necessity there is a mandate for a horizontal ministry as well and that is what I say benevolence beautifies the gospel because it, it shows that you really do love isn't that what James says he says what kind of love is it if when someone comes to you they're in need and you, you, know, you say be warned, be filled and get out of here if you don't do something to help them what kind of love is that huge it's absolutely huge let's draw a few let's draw a few points from this here some application what can what can we draw out of this well we said it last week we'll say it again this week deacons should not be in the property maintenance business deacons are to be in a people business they need to be in the people business. And the people business they need to be in is the business of ministering mercy to those who are in need. Listen to this quote by uh, Alexander Strock, his book, The New Testament Deacon. He says churches spend hundreds of thousands, even millions of dollars on buildings, drapes, pews, and stained glass. But can barely squeeze $1,000 out of their budgets to help their own needy people. What an indictment. What an indictment. You can't miss the impact that benevolence has on church growth. Look again at verse 7. Do not miss this. Do you want to see the gospel spread in the city of Upland? Do you want to see it really take root? We cannot overlook, we cannot miss the significance of mercy ministries as they are interwoven with the gospel. See, the problem with the liberal church, folks, is that all they ever do is the social ministry and they never get to the gospel. And so they minister at the horizontal level and they feed people and they clothe people and they care for the poor and the needy and they send them to hell by never telling them the gospel. But the problem with the conservative church is that we're so focused on telling them the gospel that we we look right beyond their poverty and we don't care a hoot about it. We need to do both. We need to do both. We need to minister to their greater and eternal need in Christ, but we also cannot overlook, we cannot overlook their temporal, horizontal needs. This came to me as... Somewhat of an epiphany, I don't know how long ago it was now, a year or more. I was reflecting on 1 Timothy 3 and the, and the uh, high uh, caliber of, of uh, characteristics that were laid out there for elders and deacons. And I was just thinking about all of that. I was saying, you know, elders have such a, such a huge package that, you know, they have to attain to, and, and deacons as well. And I got thinking about churches in general i got i got thinking about the fact that you know in the bible teaching church you know we put all this emphasis on teaching doctrine and the word of god and evangelism and all that kind of stuff and and we don't do anything over here and yet we have all of these men that have to live to this high caliber they have to be men of of incredible integrity and men of godliness and we don't give them anything to do then i got thinking about the liberal churches and the conservative churches. And how the Bible teaching churches have, for the most part, abdicated social responsibility over to the liberals. we have given it all to them. We've retained for ourselves the gospel. We've become like, we don't care anymore about people. We, we only care about, you know, getting them to profess faith in Christ. That's all we care about. And I thought, well, wait a minute. Now I know why there's two groups of men that are equally lofty in terms of their characteristics because they have two, not competing, but complementary ministries. See, you have the elders who have this ministry of the word, to minister to the eternal soul of men and women, and then you have deacons who are ministering to, to their physical needs in the here and the now, and when both are doing their jobs well, you have ministered to the complete person. Body and soul. I mean, God has created us, has He not? Body and soul. And He called it very good. Isn't that right? And in the resurrection, we are expecting glorified what? Bodies. You know, we're not going to be disembodied spirits floating around somewhere, you know, just souls somewhere. We're going to be in real bodies. Bodies. God cares about human bodies. And we need to, too. We need to, too. I think this is huge. I think if we could get a hold of this thing and really go after it, this would be huge. This would separate Foothill Bible Church from most of the other churches in this whole community. We would be going after body and soul, ministering to the whole person pitfalls along the way to be sure you get so focused on ministering the body you never get around to the gospel you can be so ministering the gospel you never get around to the body i mean it sure there's pitfalls but i think it can be done i think it can be done i've already overused my time but i think i have some from last week if i remember right time to make a withdrawal Vince. Oh, I had other things I wanted to say to you here. Let me just say this, I guess. You know, there is no incongruity between being a deacon and being a Bible teacher. Let me just draw that out of the text. Philip was a Bible teacher. Isn't that true? He went on up to Samaria. He had powerful ministry up there. You can be a deacon. You can be an excellent deacon. That doesn't prohibit you from being a Bible teacher. All right, They are not mutually exclusive there are many men who are good and competent Bible teachers who just don't sense the call of God for the requirements and the burdens of full-time pastoral ministry. They are gifted and they are by temperament to, to fulfill the ministry of a deacon and yet they also can teach the scriptures and they can do it well and they can do both. So we're not saying that only the elders teach, the deacons can never teach, they don't have to open the word. Or anything. That would be to go against what Paul says about them. So you can be a good deacon and a good Sunday school teacher or a good Bible study leader. You could even be a good preacher. But maybe you just don't sense the call of God on your life for the day-to-day shepherding responsibilities of the elders. Perfectly legitimate. Perfectly legitimate. We're divided into adult fellowship classes. Isn't that right? At the 9 o'clock hour? I think, Vince, we've got about, what, 75%... Attendance is now roughly 75% of our Sunday morning here shows up at 9 o'clock. If you're part of the 25%, let me encourage you to get up. You set your clock a little earlier and get up and come. And one of the reasons that we want you to come is because that is the means and mechanism by which we can shepherd you. That's the place where we take attendance. That's the place where we really know whether you're here or not. That's the place where we can get more one-on-one with you. And that is the reason why we have assigned deacons to be part of those fellowship classes so that the ministry of benevolence beginning first inside this body and once it's being done well here expanded out into the community that we can know your needs so we have elders and we have deacons in each fellowship class so we can take care of this body well but i don't know about you I, i'm i'm or i don't know and you don't know either whether god is going to give us some kind of growth, numerical growth. We've not had much. But it's possible, isn't it? I figure there's got to be a whole lot more elect in the city of Upland that we haven't you know, stumbled across yet. And if we get out there and we start casting the seed and start ministering to people's needs, there's no telling what could happen. We need to be ready. We need to be ready to Minister to the needs of the people. What do deacons do? Deacons are the ministers of mercy. Ministers of mercy within the people of God. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, it's in your genius and wisdom that you set aside two groups of men to give leadership within your church. And our Father, you set them in place not to be in competition with one another, but to complement one another. That the ministry of the Word, the preaching of the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ could go forth with power. And at the same time, there could be a true and loving care for people. That people would not get overlooked. It wouldn't... People would not get ground up and spit out. But those that are very close and dear to your heart, those who are the downtrodden and disadvantaged, could receive the extra mercy and care that, that they need. And so, Father, not only elders, but deacons are essential to the ministry of a healthy church. Lord God, I thank you for the elders and deacons that you have raised up within this body. I thank you for those men who have come forward to give of themselves to enter into training ministries in order to grow in their skill that they might serve the body as elders and deacons themselves one day. And I pray, our Father, that as we seriously attempt to make the gospel available every year to every person within this community, that you might be pleased to grant us to see with our own eyes the conversion of your people. Our Father, I do pray that you would grow this fellowship and that you would grow it numerically, that people would be rescued from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved Son, and that you would grant us the privilege of being used of you in that way not for our glory, not for our bragging rights, not for the puffing up of our egos, but that the Lord Jesus Christ could be exalted for His cross work. It's in His name we pray. Amen. If you will give, uh, give me just a moment to uh, get down that aisle and get to the back door. We don't have a closing song for you this morning, um, but if you'll just give me that time to get by, then we'll let you go, all right?